adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Our Father, the words of your Son to the peoples of Galilee in his own day are that The message of Jonah is not primarily about Jonah, but is to point ahead to one greater than Jonah, who is the Lord Jesus himself. And the sign to end all signs has come. The Son of Man has spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and has arisen again. To preach repentance and salvation to all nations. Lord, I pray that by the working of your spirit, we would have our eyes open to behold that sign this morning. That we would see Jesus in all of his beauty and in all of his glory and in all of his saving power. And that like the men of Nineveh. We would repent. Lord, this is a work of your spirit. It is a great thing that I ask today that you would raise men and women from death to life, that you would bring people to repentance and to faith, that you would teach your people how it is that you deal with the unbelieving heart. It is a great thing that I ask. But I'm reminded of the words of John Newton, thou art coming to a king, great petitions to him bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. So I ask you to accomplish great things in our midst. Namely, that you would help us to see and to treasure Jesus. I ask this in Christ's name. Well, last week from Jonah 2, we focused upon the repentance of Jonah, which was the repentance of an insider, somebody who knew God but had rebelled against God's command to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the message of the Lord's judgment. And as the wind howled and the waves churned and crashed against the boat that was carrying Jonah away from the presence of the Lord to the land of Tarshish, we saw that God's hand of discipline was there to stop Jonah's self-destructive flight. And the great fish was there, appointed by God to rescue Jonah, who was standing, as it were, at the very gates of Sheol as the bars were threatening to close in around him forever. And I considered entitling last week's message, How to Repent Like a Prophet, Because it focused upon the repentance of God's own people, those who know Him, those who are within the visible covenant people of God, churched people. And we were reminded that repentance is to be a part of our everyday life. 
We don't repent once. We repent and enter into a life of repentance. And we saw from Jonah chapter 2 how it is we return continually into the presence of the Lord when we have sinned. This week approaches the issue of repentance from a different perspective and from a different angle. I could have titled today's sermon, How to Repent Like a Pagan, because it focuses upon the repentance of outsiders, those who don't know God, but who God in His sovereign mercy has set His saving love upon, has chosen to redeem. Thus, today's message is addressed to those who may be among us who don't know God who do not yet believe the gospel, who have never trusted in Christ and rested upon His mercy and laid hold of His gospel. Much like the people that Jesus spoke to in His own day up in Galilee, who were still on the fence as to who Jesus was. But it also has relevance to the church, to the sheep, to those who are among us who already believe, because in Jonah chapter 3, we see a picture of how God deals with the hearts of sinners, of how God brings unbelieving peoples to faith in His Son and to repentance. And since Jesus has commissioned us, His church, to take the gospel to the nations, you see, we're Jonah taking the gospel to Nineveh. It would benefit us to see how God does this. How does He use us to bring the Ninevites who are outside of our doors to Himself and to repentance and saving faith? How does God call out His elect from among the nations and bring them into His fold? There's much to learn in this chapter about the great task of global missions and of personal disciple making and of our vital role therein. How does God save sinners? That's the question of the day. How does God take unbelieving peoples and bring them to repentance and faith? It doesn't matter where or when. It doesn't matter whether they're in Nineveh in the 8th century B.C. or whether they're in Nixa in the 21st century A.D. 2,800 years of history does not change how God saves sinners. More to the point this morning, how might you be saved from the judgment that is to come upon all the earth for its wickedness and violence and evil? This morning I want to point out for you three primary truths about repentance from Jonah chapter 3. I want to share with you the cause of repentance and then I want to point out from the chapter the components of repentance and then we're going to conclude by taking great hope and rejoicing in the consequence of repentance. So let's begin with the cause. I want to take this opportunity before we actually jump into the text of Jonah chapter 3, and I want to lay underneath our feet a theological foundation for repentance by asking the question, what is the source? Where does repentance come from? Does it arise from within the heart of man or does it arise from within the heart of God? Well, underneath and before man's willing decision to repent, man's willing act of repentance, underneath and before that willing act goes the sovereign and powerful and effectual grace of God. 
which is the theme of the book of Jonah, right? Jonah is the book of God's grace. Simply put, repentance finds its source in the sovereign grace of our God and Father. The Apostle Paul makes this point very powerfully in 2 Timothy chapter 1. When he's writing to Timothy, there's a couple of men in the church at Ephesus where Timothy is a pastor. And and he's writing to him and he's saying, I want you to deal with these men because they are teaching false doctrine. And he writes to them how Timothy is to deal with this particular situation. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, but refute foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Listen, why do you do this, Timothy? Why why not just cut them off and kick them out? Why, Why deal with them in gentleness? Not being quarrelsome. Not bringing the hammer. Why? Listen, if... Perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. True and genuine repentance is therefore a gift of God's free and sovereign grace towards sinners who do not seek Him and who otherwise would not repent because they are captives to the will of the evil one. And I want you to think back on the book of Jonah and ask yourselves, is this not evident from the pages of this Old Testament Scripture? Everything in this book has been leading up towards Nineveh's repentance. This is the high mark. You thought that the, that the fish story was the main event. It's not. The greatest awakening in human history is the high point of Jonah. This is the greatest mass conversion that we've ever heard about in the entirety of human travels. 120,000 people who, spiritually speaking, don't know their right hand from their left hand are brought to nothing before the power of God's grace. And everything up to this point has been God's effectual and sovereign and providential grace orchestrating events to get His prophet to His people who are to repent and to believe in Nineveh. I want you to think back with me. I mean, look at, look at Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And I want you to stop right there. Those words ought to cause us to stand in wonder of God's unfathomable grace. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh and to cry against it because it is a great and wicked and violent and pagan city whose depravity is so abhorrent to God that it has come up before him. say, well, where's the grace in that? You need to ask yourself, why not just destroy them? Why go to them and say, I'm going to destroy you? Think back of another city whose wickedness 
came up before God, like maybe from Genesis 18 and 19. Do you remember Sodom? Did God send Sodom a warning of the judgment that was to come? No, he did not. He just rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and wiped them out. The very fact that God sends his prophet to Nineveh with this proclamation of judgment is sure evidence that God intends to save. The answer is attributed only to grace. God sent this message of judgment to Nineveh in order that he might pour out his grace and his mercy upon them and bring them to faith and repentance. And Jonah knew this from the very beginning, which is why he didn't want to go. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. After he's gone, and after they've repented, and after God has relented concerning the calamity, Jonah throws a pity party and says, I knew this would happen. I knew you were saying, if you had wanted to wipe them out, you'd have just wiped them out. But you sent me there because you intended to save. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that the message of judgment, the very fact that you have ears to hear the message of judgment is an act of God's astounding grace towards you. He could have just wiped you out as our sins deserve. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Jonah 1 3 to 4. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them from, uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now again, we should stop and we should recognize God's grace in this picture. God says, Jonah, go. Jonah says, God, no. And he goes, and he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's doing everything he can to get away from God, but the Lord hurls a great wind and goes and stops him in his tracks. Providentially governs the casting of the lots to get him tossed into the sea. Appoints the great fish to swallow him whole, to take him back to land. The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. And when the word of the Lord comes to him a second time through this process, Jonah's heart has been softened to the point where he then consents and he obeys and he goes. Why not just let him go? See, God has a plan. And that plan is to bring Nineveh to repentance. And that repentance finds its source in God's free and sovereign grace. Everything. Everything is leading up to the repentance, the gift that he's getting ready to pour out upon a city. Finally, I want you to look at Jonah 3, verses 4 to 5. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the next verse is maybe the most surprising verse in the entire Bible. Knowing what we know about the Assyrians who lived in Nineveh. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast. 
and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There is no explanation for verse 5 other than that the Lord opened up their hearts. There is no explanation other than that God gave them grace in an an abundance, freely and sovereignly upon the people of Nineveh, such that they believed the message and repented in sackcloth and in ashes. Jonah preaches eight words in English, five words in Hebrew, and an entire city of 120,000 people believe and repent. Nineveh was famous for its wickedness and its violence. By all human measure, let me tell you what should have happened when Jonah sets foot into the gates of the city and begins to say, my God in 40 days is going to wipe all of you out. They should have run him through with a sword. Something worse. They didn't. They believed. They repented. Why? Do you see it? God's grace granted them repentance. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may escape the snare of the evil one who has held them captive to do his will. God took the key of his grace and unlocked the chains of their slavery and they were free. True repentance finds its source in the free and sovereign grace of God. It is a gift of God to sinners who do not seek him and otherwise would not repent. And this truth is evident in all of the events which God had foreordained and was providentially governing to get Jonah to Nineveh with his message. And it is evident that when Jonah arrived in Nineveh, this wicked and violent and pagan people were utterly broken and undone before the power of his mercy. This is true and genuine repentance, and such repentance does not occur apart from the Spirit who gives life. So underneath and before man's willing act of repentance... God is not twisting anybody's arm, making them repent. He's opening up their eyes so that they will see the freight train of judgment that's bearing down upon them. When, people have their, when blind people have their eyes open to the fact that they are standing on a train tracks and a locomotive is bearing down upon them, you don't have to tell them to move. What they need is their eyes open. And that's what God does when he gives repentance to sinners. Underneath and before the willing repentance of man is the working of God's sovereign grace to evoke, to enable, to bring forth that response of repentance and faith. This is what I've referred to before as big God theology. And it is true, and it is biblical, and it is glorious, and it is the only reason why we are here in a state of faith and repentance. God granted to us repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and he freed us from the slavery to the evil one who had held us captive to do his will. And thank God for it. God is the cause of true and genuine repentance. So that in the final analysis, all of the glory belongs to him. Second, what are the component parts or the necessary elements of true and saving repentance? Or another way we might ask this, what what are the steps of conversion? I want to point out four to you in this passage. 
Number one, I want you to notice that repentance begins with the preaching of the word. Why did Jonah have to go to Nineveh? Why why couldn't God simply grant repentance and salvation to the Ninevites without having to go through all the trouble of the prophet and the storm and the fish and, and all of that? And the answer lies in the fact that God works through His Word and never apart from His Word. What the Ninevite need, Ninevites needed was not moral reformation. What they needed was a spiritual resurrection. They needed new birth. They were a wicked and violent and pagan people because they were dead in transgressions and sins. Their wickedness and their violence and their idolatry was simply the fruit, the natural outworking of their wicked and sinful hearts. They needed to be raised from from death to life. They needed their eyes open. They needed a heart transplant. And the Bible makes it clear that these things happen. New birth happens only through the Word and never apart from the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word. For you were born again, not of seed which is perishable, but of seed which is imperishable. That is the living and abiding Word. In the exercise of His own will, God brought you forth through the Word of truth. It's not that God is not capable of, of saving people apart from His Word, it's that He has decided not to do so. He has decided that the means by which He will raise people from death to life is through the proclamation of His Gospel. Thus, true repentance always comes through the Word and never apart from the Word. And I know that that there are many of you who pray diligently for your unbelieving spouse or parents or children or friends or co-workers and you pray for them and, and and I'm so glad that you do you should and you should continue but unless somebody takes this gospel to them they will not be saved you understand that right Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call in Him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? How will they hear unless somebody preaches? So I would just encourage you on the basis of this text and the truth that underlies this text to add to your prayer. Don't stop praying that God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Don't stop praying. But add to your prayer proclamation and see what God will do by His grace. Because the first step of repentance, repentance begins with the preaching of the Word. The sharing of the Gospel. Second then, the preaching of the Word creates faith. Before repentance can occur, there must be faith. For true evangelical repentance is the fruit of true evangelical faith. This again is evident from the text of Jonah 3. Before they repent in sackcloth and ashes, there's this wonderful little phrase that we find at the beginning of verse 5. Then they believed in God. Verse 9 says, and they hoped in His mercy. 
I found myself wondering as I studied this passage, what, what was it they believed? The text merely states, the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now, obviously, they believed what God had said through Jonah concerning judgment, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But we know from the entire revelation of Scripture that a pronouncement of judgment is not sufficient to bring sinners to conversion. The law does not produce saving faith. Only the gospel can raise sinners from death to life and bring them to repentance and to faith. To put it another way, it is only through the gospel that sinners may be converted. They may be convicted through the law, but they're only converted through the gospel. There must be more than the threat of judgment in hell. There must be some good news of of God's mercy to which the sinner may grasp hold. As Paul wrote in Romans 2.4, in the final analysis, it's the kindness of God and the hope of His mercy and not the judgment of God and the threat of His wrath that brings sinners to repentance. I can know that judgment is coming upon me, but unless I have some reason to hope that maybe I may be saved... I'm not going to repent. Listen to what one commentator wrote. He said, this hope of mercy was essential to their change of heart. True repentance is always grounded, not merely in the law of God, but also in the hope of the gospel. True repentance is an evangelical repentance. It is actuated not merely by fear of wrath, but also by hope of grace. This is why Paul says, Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, training men to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It was the hope of salvation that spurred Nineveh's repentance. And we can see this hope of God's mercy in the words of the king in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So ask yourself this question. Where might the Ninevites had obtained the hope that God was not just just, maybe he was also merciful? Where might they have obtained this hope of God's grace? From the text, it appears that Jonah only preached a message of judgment. It is possible, I suppose, that that he said more than those five words, and those are just the only words that we have recorded. But but where does the hope come? Where's the gospel in this? Where's the good news that brings them to life and to repentance and to faith? Well, I think there's two possible sources. The first we've already mentioned, which is that the threat of judgment contains in it the implication of an offer of mercy. Otherwise, there's no reason to warn people of judgment. God sent no warning to Sodom because he offered no mercy to Sodom. But God did send a message of warning to Nineveh. And the very fact that God went through all the trouble of sending Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment may have provoked in the Ninevites the hope of mercy. There's no reason for God to send this prophet to our city and and to say that judgment is coming not immediately but in 40 days. Unless God is opening up a window for our repentance and salvation. But there's another source of their hope in God's mercy, and that's Jonah himself. Do you remember what Jesus said concerning Jonah in the passage I started with? 
said, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a sign to the men of Nineveh. Jonah was a sign from God to the city of Nineveh, and that sign was a resurrection of sorts. They must have heard reports coming from the coast of a Hebrew prophet who had been swallowed by a fish and preserved miraculously, supernaturally in the belly of this fish three days and three nights and spewed out upon the beach still alive. And now this prophet has arrived at the gates of their city with a message from his God. And this sign is intended to cause the people of Nineveh to sit up and to take notice. Perhaps this answers the question as to why they didn't just kill him immediately when, upon his arrival. Maybe they're thinking in their mind, maybe the God who extended such mercy to Jonah has mercy for us as well. Thus, the resurrection of Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites of God's abundant mercy. And the clear application of this in the era of the new covenant in which we live is that even so, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sign to this generation of God's abundant mercy towards sinners even today. So to you who may be here this morning who do not believe, you're not a follower of Christ, You have not yet seen him as compelling and as relevant enough to your life to forsake all to follow him. To you, I lay before you a sign. Not not the sign of an 8th century Galilean prophet who disobeyed God and, and ran away to Tarshish and was cast into the sea and was swallowed by a fish and emerged three days later to preach the word of the Lord to Nineveh. Rather, I lay before you the sign of a first century Galilean prophet, one greater than Jonah, who rather than disobeying, obeyed every single command of his father, yet was cast into the swirling sea of of God's wrath for sins not his own, and suffered and died for the iniquity of his people, and emerged three days later out of the grave to proclaim salvation to the nations, including to the people of Nixa. That's the sign for us this morning. This is the sign of Jonah, and I want to give you Jesus that comes with a warning. Are you ready? That's the sign. The Son of Man, cast into the sea of God's wrath, descended into the grave, raised on the third day, offering salvation to the nations. That's the sign, and here's the warning. And no other sign will be given you. If the resurrection of the Son of Man is not sufficient to evoke your worship and faith, that nothing will change your heart. So do not resist Him who calls this morning. Do not resist the crucified and risen Son of Man who stands before you as a sign. Believe on Him and trust in Him and believe the gospel of the grace and the kindness of God and repent. And God will turn and relent from the calamity that He has ordained will come upon all the wicked who refuse to believe. Third step. Okay? 
Repentance begins with the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word produces faith. Faith produces godly sorrow over sin. So hearing the word of God, both law and gospel, and believing the word of both judgment and mercy produces a true sorrow over sin. The sorrow of the Ninevites is is real. It's not what Paul calls worldly sorrow. It's what he calls godly sorrow leading to repentance. And it's evidenced by these outward expressions of repentance that you see them participating in. Fasting and putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. These are outward expressions of humility before God. Outward signs that the, that the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the judgment God of God has afflicted and pierced my conscience. It's an outward expression of grief. But listen, but outward expressions of sorrow in and of themselves are insufficient and unreliable evidence of true repentance. Rend your hearts and not your garments, says the Lord in Joel 2.13. David prays, Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The surest evidence of true repentance is not weeping and tears, but turning from sin. That's what true repentance consists in. The king of Nineveh called upon all of his subjects, verse 8, to call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. If you have not turned from sin, you have not repented and you are not saved. The Ninevites were characterized by wickedness and violence. And here the king calls them to turn away from what? Wickedness and violence. Their chief and characteristic sins. So repentance often begins and is associated with tears and grief and maybe outward expressions of of sorrow. But it's got to go beyond that. It's got to go to transformation. Or else we're just hearers of the word and not doers. And it's not true repentance. Fourthly, finally, the godly sorrow prompts us to call upon God for mercy and pardon. This is what we talked about last week. At the core of repentance, there's communication. Communication. I call. I implore. I plead. I cry. I ask. We have to communicate with the God with whom we have to do. It doesn't have to be audible. It can be. It doesn't have to be silent. It can be. But there's got to be some Godward communication. I've got to call upon the name of the Lord out of this godly sorrow that has been produced by faith, which has been provoked by the preaching of the word. I call. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly. That each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This is the cry of faith. Which clings to the hope that God is both willing and able to save all who call on his name. 
So I address you once again this morning. If you are here and you don't believe and you're not a follower of Jesus, and if by His grace the Spirit of God has pierced your conscience and God seems to be granting you repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, then I implore you to take that faith and give it voice and communicate with God and call upon His name. Pray to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and confess your faith to Him and ask Him to forgive and ask Him to save and ask Him to cleanse and ask Him to make you new. Cry out for salvation because the consequence of repentance is that God hears and God saves, which we see in Jonah 3.10. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them. And He did it not. Calling upon God for mercy and pardon brings mercy and pardon. There is nobody who calls sincerely out of faith and repentance who is not answered. There is nobody who cries who is not saved. These components of repentance I've just outlined for you, they're the same that the Apostle Paul gives us, right? Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They call because they believe, and they believe because they hear, and they hear because it's preached, and they preach because it's sent, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And you, beloved, you have a part. Did you hear your part? You have a role in God's granting of repentance to sinners. You have a role. How beautiful on the hills are the feet of those who bring good news. That's you. Share the word that they may believe. And believing that they may be brought to sorrow and being sorrowful that they may call and calling that they may be saved and that God may relent of the judgment and wrath that is coming upon sinners. This is the consequence of true repentance. Mercy and pardon and salvation from the judgment of the Lord. And it's offered to every one of you here. Who? Who? will believe, repent, and call on the name of the Lord. So everyone who is here is either a Jonah or a Ninevite. You see that? You're either an insider or an outsider. Let me put it another way. You're either churched or unchurched. To the Jonas who are among us, to the church, I leave you with this message, we have a commission. We have a, we have a link in the chain of salvation. God saves through His Word and never apart from His Word. And how can they preach unless they are sent? We've been called to take the Word to Nineveh, but Nineveh, Nineveh, your spouse, your friends, your co-workers... The nations will not be saved unless they hear. And how will they hear unless you tell? 
So let this chapter be an encouragement to you to reach out with the gospel. Give some feet to your prayers. Keep praying, but then proclaim. Because success lies in the hand of the Lord. You cannot fail, right? If it's God who grants repentance to sinners, how do you fail? We only fail if we don't go and share. So go. Let Jonah 3.10 provoke in your heart the desire to go. But to the people of Nineveh who may be among us, I call upon you once again just to heed the warning of this text and to lay hold tightly of its hope. If you refuse this message and if you reject and turn away from the sign of Jonah, there will be no other sign given to you. If you don't receive the sign of the Son of Man descending into the sea of God's wrath and emerging from the grave three days later to offer salvation to you, there is no hope of salvation and the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and condemn you because the preaching of one who is greater than Jonah has been offered to you today. So do not turn away. Respond to the message of the gospel. Believe in Christ and call upon His name and turn from your sins in repentance. And God will relent from His judgment and He will save you and He will bring forgiveness and He will give you life and He will make you new. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Rather than that, He should turn from His ways and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Let's pray. Our Father, in accordance with the God-breathed word of Scripture found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I ask you and plead with you and implore you to grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth to set the captives free this morning. We've done our best this morning to present Christ, the one who is greater than Jonah, crucified for sinners and raised for our justification. And now I ask you to call and to give life and to give faith and to grant repentance and to bring mercy and pardon and life into their hearts. If that's you this morning, then I just implore you, call now. Call. There's no magical formula. There's no special prayer. It's just calling, communicating, giving voice to repentance, giving words to sorrow, giving language to the desire to be saved, and offering up this voice to the only one who is able to do so. You call. And he will save. Bless your people this morning. May this word take deep root in their hearts. And may it provoke a vocal people. An outgoing people. A people with a burden for the lost who know that they are the link in the chain of salvation. Getting the word to the unbelieving. May the Spirit come and light a fire 
of outreach in the hearts of this church. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand and we're going to conclude with a time of worship and response. As always, Gordon and I are available up here to...